0: Sounds of summer. Can it get any better? Oh yeah, I forgot about that one. Discover the unforgettable sensations of the Lexus performance lineup. Explore the possibilities of a Lexus at the Golden Opportunity Sales Event, now through September 6th. Click the banner to discover more. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Welcome back into another edition of The Kickabout here on The Blue Room. I'm your host, Rob Vera, joined by other host, or I don't know, Mark. I, I always feel like I'm stumbling when I'm about to say this. My co-host, other the the host. Uh, it is it is not 1A, 1 and 1A. It is just 1 and 1. I don't know how to
1: convey our our kind of equality bit that we've got going here. Still, I need to find that kind of natural flow and and some form of subordinate title to to carry forward. But yeah, look, I'll take the other guy for now.
0: I, look, Mark, I just want you to know that you're only referred to as middle management on the WhatsApp chat, okay, buddy? Um, I just need you to keep Matt Jones off my back, and then you know. But publicly, front-facing, we are absolutely equals. So I want to be very clear on that. I'm essentially the bouncer
1: of kicks. <laughs> 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 yes, <laughs> Mark, yes. We'll fight them off and, and let you let you be the flare. <laughs> 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 oh <laughs> man! So so
0: tonight's um, tonight's a little different. Um, it's a different vibe because. Mark, so Mark and I, just to kind of peel back the curtain. I don't know if that's ruining the magic, but I, I hope it's not. But Mark and I generally record, uh, and you know, and whomever the third is to join us, we generally record um, like Wednesdays at oh god, what time? Like seven year time, I think. Yeah, yeah, So that's about that's about lunchtime for me. Uh, about one o'clock, one thirty, whatever. And tonight. Mark wanted to to actually go uh significantly later than usual so Mark for our listeners at, at the time of recording what time is it over there
1: uh, it has just gone 10 p.m. uh I've just had the pleasure of seeing two english teams actually achieve nice things in football which which at the moment makes me makes me incredibly jealous as you can imagine
0: yeah oh Sports has just been a big kick in the dick lately, hasn't it?
1: I think the kickoff time essentially is is purely just a reasoning for it to be slightly more socially acceptable for me to have alcohol whilst we record this. Now, yeah. <laughs> as you say, Robert, usually I'm just finishing work. I'm probably still in work. Uh, there's this whole thing about drinking whilst at work, which is quite frowned upon over here. I've no idea why, but now it's a um, it's a good time to to watch a bit of footy, want to get in, unwind a bit, and and dig into a number of things that have gone on in the last week. Uh, as you say, some of them are, are pretty boring and, and of a sporting origin, but certainly from a from a local point of view, uh, from a from a musical point of view, which will which will definitely interest you, Rob, and kind of the restarting of society it's, it's something that's been been very important certainly locally in the in the liverpool city region over the last over the last few days and that's yeah. been a, it's been a nice distraction definitely
0: yeah definitely saw a lot of the a lot of the videos of uh, everyone being back out and enjoying live music i thought that was great yeah uh, yeah let's let's get on to that for sure um I am. Uh, what's so funny is normally when we record, um, I'm the one who's always just like, ah, the clock, who cares? I got time. You know, I can go maybe a little over my, my lunch break, whatever. If my boss is listening to this. I, I promise i make up make up for the time on the back end, but. Um, (laughs) but yeah, like I'm now today, because when we're recording, I'm, I'm looking at, looking at my watch and I'm like, well, today is Cinco de Mayo, which is the ultimate, um, American America. Oh God. I don't know. The, the attempt to super league, some Mexican cultural ref point r- a reference point into our own drinking holiday, basically. Uh, and it's, you can pop study, so we'll allow it. It's yeah, it's, it's basically just another, it's just instead of an Irish thing, it's a Mexican thing. And in both cases, you just drink a lot and there's a lot of like music that's, theoretically related to it and it's yeah it's it's silly but i mean who am i mark mosey to turn down five dollar margaritas i I just don't think that i'm i'm man enough to do that so i'm not going to uh so i'm going to celebrate this you know (laughs) even though i'm latino celebrate this kind of weird semi-latino semi-commercialized semi-gross Semi awesome drinking thing. That's what I'm going to do tonight. So I am keeping my eye on this clock, Mark. We're going to have to get through a lot in the next few minutes. But uh, yeah, that, uh, the uh, let, we could go ahead and start there. Actually, tell me about tell me about this live music experiment uh that i saw uh the videos from sefton park i want i do want to start there just because Mm a i'm jealous i can't wait to go back to some shows again even at my advanced age um i don't think i'll ever take them for granted again as i know i would begun to Uh, but but b just I, I i i have to ask some of the context because I kept seeing this referred to almost as an experiment or a test case or something like that. It sounded very uh, clinical, but yet it's, Rock bands and probably overpriced beer and everyone being together and good time. So, give you know, kind of paint the picture for for those of the those of our listeners who obviously probably you know many of whom weren't there or many of whom aren't familiar with uh, what happened in Sefton Park over the weekend.
1: Joe, you know it actually started before that um, and a, a little bit closer to home. I, I don't know if you saw this as well, Rob, but um, bizarrely down at Bramley Moor, uh, we had a, a similar test event. Um, which was, I mean, someone will no doubt correct me on this. I think it was a two-night, you know, gig over two nights. I think Fatboy Slim was there. There was a lot of other sort of DJs. Um, A lot of the videos were showing, you know, I I know, as you say, it's a a test event. But for all intents and purposes, apart from having to have a COVID test beforehand, I think afterwards for some of these events, um, no social distancing, no masks. Um, It was very much sort of back to normal. It was it was quite strange seeing it from a, a video point of view. I think that was strange to see. Um, I also spent most of watching the videos of of that sort of two-night gig trying to figure out dance music and, and why it's really a thing. I'm sure someone will get on to me about that. But, yeah, I think re- regardless of your preferences, so musically or, or socially, it was nice just to see people get out and, and enjoy life again, really. Um the the Sefton Park gig again, pretty close to home because we we of course had Zuzu performing. Um she I think was the the first act on, um friend of the show, I think it's it's fair to say. So yeah, she was on. Um and I think it finished with Blossoms. Um but yeah I, again I think other than the the PCR COVID testing beforehand and, and afterwards so they the attempt I think at these was to try and make things just as natural and as normal as possible. Um, we I think what we all feared about sort of live events and live music going forward was that there would always be this sort of caveat of some element of social distancing or, or you know, mask wearing which we've seen certainly at sport and events and that may well persist when when fans return to the Premier League in a few weeks' time, I'm honestly not sure. But I think the the brave nature of these experiments was that th- there, was a, there was a real attempt to try and make this how we want life to be for the foreseeable w- without as many restrictions as possible. And I suppose what I don't know at the moment is how this is going to be monitored and, and measured and used going forward. Um, obviously, we'll, we'll no doubt hear about the number of people who went to those events who later contracted COVID and, and can it be related back to the, to those events um, how safe generally is it for people to to gather in, in in such a circumstance? But I think the the one thing that has has resonated throughout the words of all of the acts that have been involved at, at both venues is just the the sheer level of energy that you can you can sense. I know for someone like Zuzu, who who by her own admission was a a bit of an understudy to to the other two acts at that particular gig, but. I think the the welcome and the reception and just the the sheer enthusiasm from the crowd that she would have got at an event like that being the first person to perform in the city since since restrictions kind of semi-lifted. I I think that there was a tangible level of excitement that have just bubbled within people for the last 18 months. And I think people use music, you'll know this, Rob, as as a release for that sort of energy. Uh, And I think... that. As you rightly say, and th- this permeates into so many elements of life. But taking things for granted, like going to see a band, and uh, you know,
0: yeah.
1: I- I'm sure you go to see far more live acts than me. And even for someone who who doesn't get out there as much as I would like to, go into music gigs. When you come away from them, it's always one of those things that you say. Fuck! I, I need to do this more. I need to go and see live yeah. or, or you know live acts, regardless of, of the sort of style that they have. But I think that that will certainly resonate far louder in our in our minds than it ever has done before. After after the last year, I I I I couldn't help but notice um, in
0: the I guess through my social media feed and, and what have you bet, between between not only the videos, but the photographs and the, 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 the things that people were talking about that, that they were really thankful for to being, you know, to be able to do again. Yeah. Um, there was just so much joy and we, we just haven't had enough of that lately. Uh, and there certainly, uh, has not been enough of that, uh, in the city of Liverpool, of course, yeah. given everything that's gone on over the last year, um, <laughs> on, on a variety of levels, right? Like it's, it's not just one thing, but, but COVID has just strung it all together. Um, It's nice to get back to normal things. I think that we're I think we're now more aware of risk than ever. Um, But, you know, we've gotten to this point where, look, if we, if, if you get vaccinated, if you take, if you do the right things, um, if you (laughs) take advantage of the loads and loads and loads of, 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 of resources and investments that have been made in finding this this vaccine. You know what I mean guys get one, be done with it and then go back to trying to live, you know, to, to do these normal things again like listen to live music, have a drink with your friends. Um, you know, for those of you who have lived over in the UK, I I I I mean I think about how how hard it has felt over here at times and then I think about the 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 truly uh, strenuous restrictions that you guys have been through. And, and I just, I, I'm so happy for those of you who have started to be able to get out again. Um, for those of you who got to that event uh, over the weekend, it, it just looked joyous. Uh, that's yeah. all I can continue to come back to is joyous. Um, and, and Mark, you make a good point. I, I don't want to lose that about, uh, live music and, and, <laughs> And, and how you go, you may not go as off. No one, probably very few people go as often as they would like to. Yes, yeah. um, and, and, and a lot of that has to do with, you know, all the choices we make uh, based on our budgets and based on uh, a variety of, of considerations around scheduling and work and all this other stuff. But um, if I can make my argument for those of you who make it to uh Dozens of, of matches a year <laughs> or more. Um, let me tell you, uh, I'm not telling you not to do that, but <laughs> give just give a sliver of that percentage to uh, live music. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the great thing about live music is that it's always going to have a better record than your favorite team and any of your favorite sports. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, the live music experience is even for a band that you like, one that you would never heard of before, et cetera, that that's such a great experience. But yeah. Glad, glad to hear that so many of you got back out and were able to do some normal things uh, over the weekend.
1: You also imagine that over the next sort of 18 months in terms of going out to see live music, opportunities in theory should be endless. Um, I mean, we, we heard the, yeah. the the level of enthusiasm that, that Zuzu and Blossoms and, and countless acts over these two events have had for just getting back out there. And I think it's it's easy to forget that these guys have, you know, what they live for is performing in front of people. Uh, you know, yeah. You can see that they absolutely thrive off that, off that opportunity to do what they love. Uh, and you imagine that after 12 months of climbing the walls, like the rest of us, so many acts across so many different genres are ready to, to get back out there and, and start doing what, what they really love. So I think there's going to be, yeah. there's going to be plenty of opportunities and, possibly big gigs weekend after weekend. And as you rightly say, Rob, it might be a, a reason to, to throw that season ticket in the Mersey and and <laughs> start, start getting to some actual enjoyable weekend weekend events.
0: Let's see, quite quite an interpretation of what I said, but yes, um, you know, go see more live music. Don't throw your season ticket into the Mersey just yet. It's, um, anyway, <laughs> speaking of speaking of sadness, uh, I guess we can uh, we can get to the sport of football. Um, I, where do you want to start, Mark? I mean, I, I'm only. I'm only kind of still catching up on everything that happened uh, in Manchester uh, over the weekend with the protests. Uh, I I definitely have thoughts on that. But, you know, we can also just get to the crushing disappointment of, you know, I'm sorry, the crushing predictable disappointment of Everton at home (laughs) over the weekend against Villa. Like, I don't even know where to start. They both kind of they both kind of suck.
1: Uh, you want to start with Everton or what? Right, I'll start with a bit of a left field one. So that, uh, right? How is Celtic versus Rangers even a thing to you? <laughs> <laughs> right, I am. So, I reckon once a month on a Sunday at midday, Celtic play Rangers, and I, I think I'm just I'm really ready for that game not to be such a regular thing anymore. I mean. Granted that th- this one had a little bit of the gloss taken away from the fact that Steven Gerrard's Rangers have already wrapped the league up, but I feel like this this happens every month, and for every fourth month, we then have the debate about whether Rangers and Celtic should be incorporated in- into the Premier League. Th- this is <laughs> said, again weirdly <laughs> in the last week, given the fact that we have kind of just assessed the Premier League and its structure and decided that we're actually fine with the way that it is um but yeah they w- one of the quotes that came out of this weekend hey, Stephen, Stephen gerrard himself said rangers are a bigger club than most premier league teams i think <laughs> that rangers would finish sixth in the premier league like i've i've seen a team in Everton oh my god really hard with quite a lot of money failing to finish in the top six of the premier league so i'm yeah. Astounded that Steven Gerrard thinks that Rangers can do it, but yeah, it, I mean, is is this fixture as boring to you as it is to me, or am I just <laughs> I just random <rampant> this up? <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, that was a a left field turn. So I will tell you, um, it's every weekend, roll. I've seen more. I've seen more MLS than scottish premier league so That's i cool. but 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 to your point though um 100 of the scottish premier league i have seen has been rangers self <laughs> <laughs> now what are they they do they have only six clubs in the premier league over there like what's the deal it's, i feel like it's either 10 or 12 but no one really cares about the other okay and so to your point about has have people really brought up this idea of the premier league yeah if i'm hearing hearing your scenario correctly somehow annexing oh. um in a very like putin's russia against the ukraine sort of way annexing these two scottish premier league teams and essentially pulling the same super league shit that they just that we, everyone just got really upset about because now the yeah. premier league would be the super league in that particular
1: uh scenario <laughs> wouldn't it's it definitely, it's definitely not something that's talked about routinely anymore yeah. but certainly down the years there, there's been a there's been a constant story of rangers and celtic being too good for for the SPL, uh and potentially coming into to the premier league to to join the other 20 and make a 22 team league I don't even know how it would work but oh, I think that, that this was at its peak before Rangers multiple demotions and you know the, the kind of the story of the last few years has been their sort of rise back to I mean if you want to call it glory you can if you want but um, they, they've become slightly more relevant again um, but yeah, it's um, it, it's a it's a bit of a strange one that, that crops up every now and again. But I've I've seen obviously with Gerard with those quotes, I've seen a few sort of hints as to as to them getting into into this league. But from from what I've seen, I think it would be a bit of a relegation battle in the Championship for them. Never mind coming into into the Premier League.
0: Um, I, let, let me just tell you something about Steven Gerrard and, and his belief that oh, they would finish sixth in the Premier League. He he's he's kind of insinuating there that they're just as big, not only as big a bigger club, but basically that they could compete on the same level. But I guarantee you he he thinks that Rangers is so big that if Wolves uh, suddenly, offered him the 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 head the the managerial position. Yeah. He would drop he would drop Rangers in a heartbeat to get back into the Premier League. And don't you forget it. <laughs> so I, I I don't think whatever. I mean, <laughs> They just sometimes they just there are certain people who don't need to be given more opportunities to just say what's on their mind. And Steven Gerrard is probably, if you've ever heard him, he's probably one of those people. That's just my opinion. But, you know, that's that's just how I feel. So whatever. I I don't think that, I mean, that's. I think Alexi Lawless over here we used to say that there were MLS clubs who could absolutely finish in the top half of the Premier League. And I'm like, Mm. you're out of your mind you, you haven't <laughs> clearly not watched either sport if you believe that's true
1: <laughs> well, well on the su- on the subject of big clubs as you rightly say we had the the Liverpool versus United on match uh, which- oh look at that transition oh
0: it's like he's a real it's like you're a real journalist Mark I like it mm-hmm.
1: the right. <laughs> <laughs> co-host is bubbling at the surface right now but um so that's uh, what yeah, the um I mean, the events that took place were, you know, a, a lot of different emotions. Really, I think in terms of, we were looking for either a club or a fan base of one of those clubs that were Super League linked to be the the kind of prevalent force in terms of leading some form of protest or or some form of, you know, for want of a better word, anarchy, which which it kind of turned into a little bit at the weekend. Um, and I think that the club that we all kind of waited for to to see some form of action from probably was Manchester United. Um, we've we've known for for so long and for so many reasons that we've discussed on this show previously about the the level of frustration that exists primarily from the fans towards the the Glazer family and and how Manchester United has been run over over recent years. Um I think first and foremost, Rob, it was it was refreshing just to see something from my point of view, because with with so many of the, the league's big mm-hmm. issues and with football's big issues, I think the the governing bodies tend to assume that time will be a healer and that football fans will generally forget the the atrocity that's previously followed, whatever that may be. And obviously this has been a this has been a pretty major one. And all of the sort of Peaked interest that people had in terms of punishing these clubs has kind of fallen off the radar in the last couple of weeks. Uh, I think the convers- yes, it has. <laughs> conversations have run very, very quiet. Um, and I think it probably needed some form of of push. Uh, and I think Manchester United fans, by, by doing what they did and achieving what they did in terms of postponing arguably Britain's biggest football match, sorry, Celtic and Rangers. Um, that 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 was that was major, a major win in that term, wasn't it? it was a, it was a big win yeah. for for kind of this pursuit against injustice.
0: Oh boy yeah it, it's <laughs> you know as far as the riots I I I don't want to hear these little criticisms about the tiny minority who got out of control as yeah. an attempt to kind of invalidate the whole thing because the the protests, you know the real protest was. I thought it was inspired. I thought it was great to see. I think you needed more of it um, on some level. But I, I would also, of course, agree with almost everyone that the Super League is sort of a last straw for for United fans. Yeah. Um, it, it, or you know it, whether it's a last straw or it's just the 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 thing that that enables them or gives them some some maybe some more widespread backing in this moment uh, to protest the Glazers who they've been obviously discontented with for a long time for, for largely more principled reasons than I think a lot of us, you know, a lot of, a lot of like other fan bases wouldn't want to give them credit for. But I mean, you know, they've won, you know, they buy players and they've, they've still won things uh, not maybe to the level that they, that they previously did, but still quite a bit. But you get the, the sense that the frustration of the Glazers is, is about their entire approach. It's about the Glazers' uh, business model, the way, you know, the debt that they continue to be plunged into. Um, it's about a lot of things. And frankly, it's about something. I mean, I've referenced this before, but it, it seems odd to me that when you think about Manchester United, you're, you're talking about one of the, what, Top three, maybe top five sporting entities in the entire world. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and yet yeah, and and this isn't about this isn't a love fest for, for United so much as, as an explanation of, of what their situation is as it pertains to their owners. Um, but I think that I think that it's weird, and' I've, I've said this before, that the the owners of Manchester United, For them, they own such a prominent kind of earthly sporting resource, whatever you want to call it. And yet it's their second most important sporting entity that they own. Um, And and that's not even close. And that's and that I think that that probably feels a little insulting to them because of the way in which. On the one hand, the Glazers are forced to manage their finances in a very particular way in the NFL model, and therefore make all this money, have a successful franchise who's just won a Super Bowl, all this other stuff, and I think that there's a sense that any success that comes from that is been you know is somewhat financed on the backs of. Mm-hmm. In both cynical and sort of principled ways, but also genuine financial ways, I think that I think that there's a lot of resentment about feeling that that the club is even if indirectly being used for you know by someone to achieve something somewhere else, uh, or 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 to do so in such a way that feels predatory. Um, and I think that they've had enough. But hey, guys, I I think the difference. In the UK, at least based on, you know, my own American lens is that the fan there is called a supporter because the connection and being a fan of, to, you know, of a particular club uh, in England or, you know, generally speaking in a lot of Europe um, is about being part of a very specific community mm-hmm. uh, that is genuine and real and historically rooted in all of these things. Right. Um Ameri- it's not just this. It's not just an American thing. I, I think it's just a rich person's thing. But there's not. You are ultimately consumers. You are data points. Uh, yeah. You who go to the stadiums, especially if you are at a club like United, if you're supportive of a club like United or or Liverpool or any of these others. I mean. <laughs> You guys showing up at the stadium financially is is nice for them, but it is it is it almost pales in comparison to all of the other other uh, people, unfortunately, or consumers or data points that that those owners feel like they um, rely on most to generate revenue, and so because of that. Um, <laughs> You're going to be talked about like you are special, but you are going to ultimately be treated like a customer or a consumer. And um, that's the saddest part at times of professional sport when professional sport. Goes from striking a good balance between the commercial and the principled things, and and kind of going all off in one direction or the other. And it's and it's sad to see that in in this sport. It's sad to see um, how that is kind of poisoned everything from you know the rich the rich staying rich and getting richer and richer and richer to um, you know the fact that. To your point, Mark, we don't hear much about punish, you know, the, the talk of punishments for these clubs, especially in terms of points deductions. I mean, I, I've retweeted the same thing I've said for multiple days, you know, that I said day, days ago about. How there is no, you know, there can be no moving forward without real punishments for these teams. And, you know, the reason for that is because in a click based, you know, ad revenue sense, um, most of the, the prominent journalists with the biggest voices in football also report on clubs that fit within that top six and they, they frankly don't want to talk too badly about, you know, justice coming to their clubs and, you know, all these types of things. Um, you know, I'm not saying that's true of all of them, but I think that that's why some of that narrative is slowed down. So anyway, the, the United protest to me is, is just, it's just the beginning. And, and I think that, um, I think that it's going to clearly be up to the fans to continue to generate narrative about this by actually going out and protesting and making their voices heard because I don't think it's being reflected in, 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 in a lot of ways, in terms of being a sustained topic. Um, you know, I think that when they start to talk about the protests and the, the minority of, of violence, uh, that, that occurs in that, they're trying to divert away from the conversation that the protests were originally about. And that's what can't get lost, uh, in this overall, yeah. um, you know, perspective about it. But, you know, I think it's, I do think it's the beginning and, um, I think that until real reform comes that 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 I I think this is going to continue to happen. Um there's got to be punishment but there also has to be real enforcement and and real restrictions put in place to keep this from happening again and I'm 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 skeptical that that's going to actually happen.
1: Well, my United funds themselves have said that this is just the beginning and that, and that's purely from their own personal point of view I think. this would not surprise me now between now and the end of the season to see Man United fans act in a in a relatively similar way of course we we hope without the sort of minor number of of disturbances that we saw and of course in terms of how our how our media operate over here that is primarily going to be the the one major thing that we see splashed all over the over the tabloids and as much as we we don't condone that sort of behavior it's you do get the the sense that it's just an inevitability of of protest a lot of the times, isn't it, when you when you do generate that level of, of hostility, which obviously Manchester United fans feel towards the entire situation. I think you're you're absolutely spot on, Rob, in terms of this this fan base needed no motive to go after the Glazers, but when you offer them such an opportunity. It's it's remiss of them to to of turn that away, and as much as they are not protesting for protesting's sake, um, they they very much equally care about the integrity of of the Premier League as much as supporters of not only the other 19 Premier League clubs, but but football supporters up and down Britain. I think the the opportunity to strike another dagger into the heart of of the Glazer family is one that they're absolutely not gonna not gonna turn down. So. I think it was, a, it was an interesting one. Um, I think whether it is from a financial and a business-minded point of view or purely from a subconscious on-the-pitch footballing success point of view, everyone in Britain sees Manchester United and Liverpool as beacons behaviourally in situations like this in terms of how do we feel, what's our attitude, how do we act in this situation. And I think that's where a lot of the anger And the frustration has come from people like Gary Neville and and Jamie Carragher, who who talk very well in terms of their frustrations about how the whole situation has unfolded. And rightly or wrongly, and I'm sure fans of of these two teams will argue that it's pretty unfair to to label Manchester United and Liverpool as kind of the pioneers of this movement. It may well not have been that case in terms of those two clubs leading it, although it, it kind of does look that way Um, but I I think in in terms of how those clubs react to the situation in terms of how they build bridges again with the fans how do their fans in turn kind of reintegrate themselves with the club and and feel that sense of belonging as you said that so many football supporters do over here eyes do turn to them because they they are the the self-proclaimed biggest teams in in this league and and globally beyond that um, so it, I think it's going to be it's going to be sort of interesting in terms of how this how this falls out. Primarily from a Manchester United point of view, um, I think a, lo- a lot of the other teams have kind of set their stall out in terms of outright silence. Now, I think what Manchester United fans have done is they have made it almost impossible for the Glazers and Manchester United as a club to stay silent. I think there needs to be some form of action on their behalf. I think. If if there is going to be, you know, you know, apologies from football clubs or sort of those bridge building efforts from clubs to fans, I think they've kind of put the ball in the Glazers' court. But I think if you were to ask most of their fans and, and most football fans generally, we're gonna get the same level of apathy from the Glazers in terms of how they deal with this. I think silence is absolutely golden for those in terms of football in power at the moment. And I think as long as we talk about football clubs themselves and we talk about the media and how they are the driving force for punishment, ultimately, if, if the governing bodies stand up and actually enforce and, and instigate punishment, then it doesn't really matter how your your media react to it or how your football clubs react to it because the punishment's there. It, it's in black and white and, and, and that's what's happening and, and this is your points deduction or your transfer ban or whatever it may be. I think the the worrying thing that I've seen in terms of the governing body's reaction this week is that we are already talking about putting in sanctions to stop this happening in the future. Um, we, we've kind of we've kind of seen this as we've all uh, yeah. let's now let's all shake hands and move on. But we'll prevent it happening in the future by installing some form of one hundred point deduction if it happens again. Which clearly it looks like it won't for we hope decades. Um, but the I, yeah. As you have so rightly said on multiple occasions, Rob, for this to be swept under the carpet would be an even bigger crime than the actual coup in the first place.
0: Yeah, I, 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 I fear even diving back into it because <laughs> it just it makes me crazy. Um, and and by the way, there there are people who argue that this is less of a league and more of just a kind of confederacy of, of independent uh, clubs kind of all looking out for their own interests here, bound by some suggestible rules here and there. But, um, and, and of course a firm commitment to, to poor refereeing uh, (laughs) we all know as well, but um, you know, I, I I think that that's the, it it just would, you know, whether you, no matter where you you know, no matter how you feel about how good of a league this really is or not, it's, it's not run in a manner befitting a a league of this, of this prominence and this quality. Um, And it's, it's sad. It's sad if there aren't actual punishments for these clubs, like genuine, they can feel them sort of punishments because um, it's a mutiny and it's, it's, it's something that just, it can't, you can't just say, all right, I think, I think, I think I'm, I think my disappointment is enough of a punishment somehow, or, you know, when your when your parent says this hurts me more than it hurts you. Well, no, I mean, yeah, that only works if you actually like, you know, spank the kid at that (laughs) point, but I'm not advocating for spanking, by the way, I don't have kids. I'm just saying that like, not, not kind of backing up what you have written down in black and white is kind of the rules of, of how we govern this thing, especially when you have clubs that, that essentially reinforce every single season, their financial advantage and the gap between the haves and the have nots. And, mm-hmm. and, and, and the league allows them to do that. And that's just kind of how it is. And, it, and it's really oddly capitalistic for a, you know, somewhat socialist leaning society to be into sport this way. Whereas in America it's capitalist, but the sports are running very like sort of everything is, is equal as possible. And so it's, you know, barring baseball. But I think that until, until real punishment is meted out, you you can't get to reform. Um, no one is motivated for reform more than when they have actually suffered some kind of sanction or punishment that hurt. Mm -hmm. Um, because sometimes you have to be able to set the example first to make the reform itself. Uh, actually be compelling and actually be important mm-hmm. um, because you want to incentivize and say we're creating it you know we're reforming so that this never happens again and it can't happen again because you saw what happened when it did happen and and i think that that's that's where the sport has got to take steps forward but i'm i'm a little disheartened to see it not being talked about nearly as much and mm-hmm. you know i think these protests are are going to continue um that will be not just a protest about super league but they will be protests about a variety of things that are that are currently ill with with uh, english football and and hopefully hopefully this is a catalyst for change you know this can be turned into everyone's kind of sad about it but this can turn into an inspiring story um
1: if these protests lead to actual action
0: yeah. um if you will so
1: yeah yeah i think we said that originally like obviously this is a, it was a pretty dark moment for sport when all of this Euro, yeah, European Super League talk kicked off but I think I tweeted quite early on in that this could be football's finest hour if, if we see the powers of that collective unity that, that football clubs and its supporters can can have together. Um, I, I don't think we've quite got to that point purely because we are lacking that that punishment but I think the 48-hour defeat of, of what they thought was going to be a, a sort of pioneering structure going forward was, was definitely a step in the right direction um, I think the the comical narrative that I cannot tolerate in the media over here is that we can't punish football teams because their fans will be sad. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I mean, that's just, pretty much that's pretty much word for word. There's, there's two thing here in that I think I get that this is not a blanket attitude, but if you ask most of the football fans of those clubs who were involved. Would you not accept, but would you understand punishments for your teams uh, and at that severe ones based on the actions that they try to take? A lot of them would probably be quite on board with it. I mean, I've got a lot of, of Liverpool supporting friends. I'm not going to say a lot, um, but over here and they, again, they're not wishing punishment upon themselves, but... If a I don't know ten point deduction was to come in place for trying to abdicate yourself from the league that created you, um, it, it it seems it seems incredible to to think that we are now going around the the stadium asking forty thousand individuals how they would feel about being punished. I mean, we we live in a in a country where, from a sporting point of view, we've seen football clubs. Time and time again, penalised primarily due to due, due to financial irregularities. <laughs> yeah, what happened to that? <laughs> teams like Wigan. There's there's, there's countless others. Um, we, we we've seen teams relegated by zero point zero five of a point because we've decided that goals per game is a thing, and no one was really thinking about Tramiers Rovers fans, who it was in that instance when we decided to just volley teams out of the league based on you know myth and and how we thought that football matches would turn out i think the the general point I'm making is that you you can't you can't appease the football fans who are to a large extent as these clubs made it clear not part of of the higher levels of decision making unfortunately this is between governing bodies and the boards of those six individual clubs and I think it's it's a strange, it, it, it's a, a kind of empathetic thing to try and cover up how severe these punishments could could potentially be. We'll put this emotional blanket on to make it sound like these clubs are, are untouchable because of the people that they serve. Uh, I think that it's a it's very callous and it's a very cunning way to try and cover up what the footballing governing body should actually be doing in this situation. And I think it it kind of manipulates. football fans on a, on a human level to make it sound like, you know, these clubs are untouchable because we're we're only thinking of you guys. It's got that sort of horrible feeling about it. If there's a governing body, let's see them govern.
0: Yeah. Period. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm right. You know, I'm, I'm, there's allegedly uh, an enforcement uh, uh, entity and, and mechanism in this uh, this Premier League. Well, I'm ready to see it. I'm ready to see something actually uh, happen here. So, all right, Everton. Um, woo. Um, I, I don't know. I, I don't know that I – I'm running out of appetite to talk about this season. Um, I mean uh, – I think, though, that I probably... I think, Mark, the only thing after the Villa... I think the only thing that the Villa match kind of reinforced for me is that, A, yes, I'm glad Carlo Ancelotti is here, but B, I'm disappointed in his performance as a manager as the season has gotten to its most critical points. Mm -hmm. Um, And and some of that... And that's, and that's saying something nuanced, you know, I I heard Matt talk about this on subscribers weekly or Matt, whether actually the whole discussion was, you know, great. Um, I highly recommend it. Um, it's Matt and Sue Smith from sky, um, and, um, Carl Roper and Dave Downey. It was great. Um, but one of the things that was noted was that you have, um, to you know, sometimes you have extreme camps, maybe it's more reflective of in social media of it's all the players or you have some that, that you know wanna put it on the manager and you know. <laughs> probably far fewer. Um, but I think that this is not, I think after this many managers, it's, it's a much more nuanced conversation than any one factor. Um, it's, uh, and I think it's fair to say, I think we all talk every single week about the weaknesses, uh, in this squad. I think we're all, I'm at the point now where I I almost don't even want to talk about them because we've talked about them. Everyone knows exactly what the weaknesses in this squad are. And, um, and a big part of that, obviously, is consistency because this they have the ability to win some games in some environments uh, and win against some high level competition. And then they have uh, the just horrifying ability to not only play down, but play below lower level competition. And it, it's, we all know those things and it's maddening. But I think that. I think that while I'm excited still about Carlo in the long term, that a I'm disappointed that we're probably not getting into Europe this year. Mm. I think that's, that's as, after the start and after the opportunity in front of us. I think that that is just frankly, um, it, it, it's 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 a disappointment because yeah. that was the expectation, um, and Carlo was not uh, to his credit shy about talking about it being an expectation. Um, and if they fall short then you know some of that's got to be on the manager i understand that that he can't deploy exactly what he would like to be able to deploy in terms of making our uh, you know our attack more consistent and making our midfield into anything um i you know i i don't know you know you finally get jordan pickford playing well and then you get you get uh scorers who don't score anymore or you get um, you know, you get the scorers scoring and yet you've got a, a goalkeeper who just keeps making mistakes or you get the defense playing well uh, and then the midfield loses someone else again. It's just it's always mm-hmm. it just always feels like when one thing starts to get better, one or two other things start to get worse. And and I'm not that I think that a lot of that is down to the squad, but. I, I think that some of the. I talked back in December when we got on our really nice, you know, second big run of the season where, um, you know, after Burnley, we won all those games uh, against some really good competition. We had a very consistent line, uh, you know, we had a consistent group, a consistent, a somewhat consistent 11, at least in terms of the defensive structure, which really was, you know, those guys were the, kind of the stars uh, of, of, of that run, that's when Ben Godfrey certainly emerged. That's uh, those were incredible Michael Keane and Yeri Mina performances. Those were incredible. Um, you know, just kind of collective, everyone kind of putting things on the line to be this really steely defensive side. And then ever since, and it's not his fault, but ever since Luca Dean came back, it's like Carlos not known exactly how he wanted to set up or you know moving moving this one player back in had a domino effect that he couldn't account for because of weaknesses in other areas of the pitch. I mean, there's just, there's so, there's so many flaws in the squad, but I, I do get the sense I got, I, I and I especially do after, after Villa that Carlo just has not been able to make while he's made certain players better this season, for sure, I don't know that collectively, um, in terms of the results, we've seen enough improvement, um, you know, given the, the expectations that he carries as, the ma- as a manager of his caliber. And so I think I just – I wanted him to be able to motivate – uh, these players on a more consistent basis. I think that's the thing I'm most scared about. But that may speak to the players to a degree. But for whatever reason, it's it does scare me that Carlo Ancelotti of all men can't mm. motivate this group of players. Yeah. Um, and 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 then secondly, I, I think there's just been a lot of tinkering. Um, I think there's been a lot of formational tinkering. I think that, you know, you got away from the defensive solidity and identity that really characterized, uh, I think our best and most gritty gutsy run of the season. I just think we lost ourselves after new year's. And Mm -hmm. so I, I, I am a little disappointed, but I'm certainly still enthusiastic about him being the manager. I'm, I hope we can get our shit together in the summer, but if we don't make Europe, I'm I'm it's it's just it's a real disappointment.
1: Mm, yeah, I think that's absolutely fair. I think if, we we said at the start of the season at a countless times during it, that at, at some point the whole kind of project building transition FC has to come to rise and has to actually have a bit of purpose about it. And I think the important part that you mentioned for me, Rob, is that Carlo Ancelotti has not been shy about vocalising his intentions for this year. And in terms of where we've seen um, football managers in general in the past, and and certainly haven't managers being a little bit coy about putting that front foot forward and saying, you know, Europe is the absolute goal. Carlo Ancelotti, for me, when he's spoken about it, has made it sound like it's an absolute necessity. Um, I think from most. Everton fans' point of view now, the the lowest expectation at, at pretty much every part of this season and and to an extent even now when we, we all feel like we're at our lowest low is that European qualification is an absolute must if, if this season is to be anything other than a, a crushing disappointment. Um, Carlo Ancelotti has broken down certain barriers for this football club this year and that is that that can absolutely not be denied. Um, the, the three wins that we've had away at Arsenal and and Tottenham and Liverpool, that regardless of how this season turns out, we'll look back at them as as fantastic occasions and and hopefully in the next few years we'll talk about those results as being far more important than what they feel now. Maybe they were the first baby steps to being the type of club who can compete on that level. But but
0: can I can I ask you one question in relation to that, like? I think the the overall arc of the season is what scares me. It's that I, you know, how it's do you, isn't it kind of weird how you think about that, that, that opening match against Spurs? And that was kind of the best we may have looked all season, especially in midfield. Now, uh, granted, you had your, you had all your first choice options there and I know I mean the Decori loss has just been crushing and I get that but I'm I'm just saying in general and I and I I I know injuries are a part of this story I'm certainly not denying that um you know relative mediocrity in midfield but it's a lot of things but it's just a little disheartening that and this is not all on Carlo that Mm -hmm. there was a point in the season where we were flying high and and the conversation was, imagine how good this is going to look when Hamas has had time with these guys. Imagine how good this is going to look when these players, um, you know, have a consistent 11 and they feel, you know, like a lot of these things. And I know injuries were, were a part of that, but um, you know, all of the discussion was about how this could only get better. And it's just a bit disheartening about, you know, when you look back and reflect on how, really our level of performance and, and that Villa, it's just unforgivable when Villa didn't really have as much to play for as us. We've got everything to play for and it's just flat. It's flat. Why? why? I I don't get it. Um, I don't know if it's people missing in the squad. I don't know if it's the choice of the eleven. Did they need a different ingredient out there in regards to I don't know, you know, whether it's leadership, whether it's uh, you know some kind of positional sense. I, I I'm alarmed. I never thought I'd say this, Mark, or you and I would say this. I'm alarmed at at the, at how Tom Davis has disappeared. I don't like it. I mm-hmm. I think he would have been useful in either of the last two matches, and I think that's someone who you know. Be, be as critical as you want about his performances at times. A, he's been wh- better this season than he's ever been for me. I mean, I think he's been useful this season for sure. Um, and B, you know, he's going to care. And I don't know how you you. I I just didn't like the decisions. I ne- I don't understand the idea of Allen and Gomez together. It's, no. It doesn't. I think Gomez. Even I have to admit now. It's just. It just doesn't appear like it's going to work. It's always going to be. You know, if the wind's blowing in this direction and the temperature's this, whatever, I just, that part drives me, drives me insane, but I'm the defensive part of it too. I'm, you know, I'm, I've had it with Mason Holgate. I've, I sort of had a breaking point with him the other night because he talks a lot. Um, uh, you know, he, he, he is, he, he is gum chewing and attitude and whatever, but, you know, there's a point where you're either a real tough guy or you're kind of a bit of a fake tough guy, and and you have to you have to back in sports. You got to back that up with your play. And I just, I'm sorry, I don't see it. I mean, I I know not not everyone's going to be Ben Godfrey or whatever, but I feel like with Holgate, he had part of a good season that we all got really excited about, and I haven't seen it since then. Yes, he came back from an injury. I know he's played right back. I'm not. I just. But I've seen a mid center half. I'm not convinced, and I'm not convinced by the way that you don't change after Arsenal. I I, I think it's. I think you have a certain use case for Arsenal that's slightly different for Villa, especially without um, without their best player. And I don't. I, I think that you you. You complement center halves. You get you get Michael Keane in there with Ben Godfrey, or you get Yeri Mina in there with Ben Godfrey. You you have you add a little more height and size and all those things. You have the super physical and athletic Godfrey, the and then you have Keener Mina to, to dominate in the air. And I just think that it doesn't work with Holgate. Mm-hmm. I don't know who Holgate works with, but it, I don't think it's Godfrey. And it seemed weird to me on a night when you needed a needed some leadership that. Your two star, you know, the two guys in the center of your defense were, for all intents and purposes, kids. I know Holgate's been around for a while; he's not maybe a kid, um, but there is something about Yeri Mina or Michael Keane that feels kind of like having the adult in the room with Ben Godfrey able to pull, you know. Be his best, but still have someone there as kind of a steadying influence, and, and got and and I just I don't I don't I I don't get the the argument anymore for Holgate, and that's just me. And I know you you kind of rate him, Mark, and yeah. I, I think that he may have something, but I don't think a five foot eleven, not not nearly as physical, uh, type of center half. I I, I just don't get it. I mean godfrey is maybe an inch taller maybe about the same height about an inch taller but the the differences couldn't be more night and day in terms of of what the specific skill set is and and i just i don't see it with holgate and anyway that that stuff and the, the team selection all that stuff kind of drove me crazy and i'm I'm trying to get to a point where I can I, I'm, I can give Carlos some grace for, for having to deal with this squad, but I wish he had made us a little bit better well, this that, season.
1: The, the, I suppose you mentioned the word grace, and I think the positive element of this is that I think collectively as Evertonians, I, I like to think that we're all kind of on board with the fact that in, in previous years and with previous men at the helm, the axe would have been wielded way beyond now. I mean, it, some of the some of the formation decisions that we've seen made, I think putting Abdellah the right back in any particular match is a borderline. Oh, God. regardless yeah. of Regardless who you are, but I think we've, we've we've all bought into the fact now that we're, we're all living in that dangerous zone of fear. In that if if Carlo Ancelotti can't do it over the space of a few years, then who can? And I think that's the reason why we've got so much not a laid back attitude, because we're all accepting that this is, is not good enough at the moment. But there's a there's a level of affordability that you give to a man who has who has been there and done that. And we, we all we all totally get that. But the the worry for me in terms of the there's been a striking imbalance in terms of where we've picked up our results. Obviously this year, we we've won some fantastic games on the road and then absolutely flush points down the down the bin at, at Goodison Park. And I think the worry going forward for me is that Tottenham Hotspur and Arsenal and Liverpool away, that they're, they're not going to be games that you necessarily are able to to win season right. season out. Like we, we may pick up a couple of those results next year. I think if, if anyone was to say we get three of them this year, we'd have absolutely bitten your hand off. But it would have come with the caveat that we are able to maintain a relative level of stability at home. Um, that that's in okay. that that's the foundation of any good Everton season in the past twenty years. David Moyes, Ronald Koeman, Right. We're gonna win ten games at home. We're gonna get one really good away result away from home and we're probably gonna pick up about twenty points on the road through beating lesser teams and and picking up points against teams around And and that's that's a fairly structured way to build a good season. The the worry for me, even if we were to finish 6th or 7th now, is that so many of our games are a flip of a coin. I think that the Aston Villa game at the weekend was an absolute summary of of how I feel Everton are going into most games this year in that... It's essentially a basketball match, and the most clinical team wins. And at certain points of this season, Dominic Calvert Lewin's been your MVP, and and he's been the one yeah. who scores one in three chances. Everton ultimately end up being more clinical, and the XG gods come out, and it rains all over. <laughs> and man, and that that yeah. has that has definitely fallen on our side equally as much as it has gone against us, but. Any, any form of consistently strong team in any sport has that progressive nature of being able to, yes, pick up points and pick up wins early on in the season, but as the season goes by, gradually identify your weaknesses. You nullify those weaknesses and build on them and you get progressively better. And I think the... You mentioned about Carlo Ancelotti tinkering with with so much of this football club at the moment. I think you don't mind that level of instability and that amount of change if, at the thirty three game mark, you can look back and say, "Well." I kind of see where this is going. I I, I, get, mm-hmm. I get where our fragility was earlier in the season. We've made these changes in the middle of the park. We've added this level of dynamism up top. I, I can see the progressive road that this team is on. And at the moment, as you quite rightly say, and you cite that Tottenham game at the start of the season, Rob, that, that was probably when we looked at our most settled. Don't mm-hmm. talk to me about injuries and, and teams missing players. That is life, guys. Th- 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 these players will come and go, especially when we sign players like James Rodriguez, who we absolutely knew from the start was not going to play more than 25 games this season. Um, we- we'd have all bitten your hand off for that number. Yes, that's yeah. why the core is a big miss, but the idea of going out and spending hundreds of millions of pounds for the last few seasons is that there's a little bit of depth there. And, and when things go badly for this team we we do settle in 6th or 7th place as opposed to 12th or 13th. And if those hundreds of millions of pounds are the price you pay for an extra five places in the Premier League, then so be it. But I think that there has to become a point where we stop being that team in the transfer window that just throws money at everything. I think the, the worrying quote from Ancelotti to an extent this week is that he said that the club has a clear project. You need to invest because you want to improve. We're going to talk in the next few weeks and try and improve the squad and be better next season. And and how do you take that? Is that? I mean, in my mind, I see someone like Carlo Ancelotti coming in his first summer undoubtedly includes signings like someone like Alan, who I'm not going to put everything on at the moment because we, we've spoken long and hard about how this must be an incredibly difficult season for him regardless of picking up that injury right in the middle of it. But... There has to be a point where Carlo Ancelotti and his backroom staff just coach the players in the manner that they have done in in previous clubs, and I'm not I'm not asking him to come in and turn Everton into AC Milan or Real Madrid without going out and spending some some real money. But there has to be that balance between the kind of the freelance Steve Walsh, let's throw our briefcase full of money at everything, whilst also being a little bit more pragmatic and actually coaching these players to do better in critical situations in football matches. I For my money, there's a, there's enough quality in this team at the moment to go out and put your foot on the neck of someone like a Fulham at home or an Aston Villa at home, who, as you rightly said, Rob, have got far less motivation to go out and win football matches than Everton at the moment. All of, all of the verbal narrative leading up to these games is that Everton are going to be the one who who really take the the game by the scruff of the neck and, and really do lead with that that level of potency up top, which we know that we've got and we, we've seen earlier in this season. What we thought we were buying into here was attitude and, and mentality and all of these buzzwords that pre-Carlo Ancelotti, this, this football club has been totally void of. And I think that that's the most disappointing element for me is that we all thought that this kind of here comes the Everton would, would have dissipated this year because Carlo Ancelotti we did for a while, didn't it? I mean, it,
0: it, 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 it really did. We were really good for a long, like decent portions of the season, you know? And it's, maybe, there yeah. was,
1: maybe there is elements of, you know, other teams sussing you out. And I I, yeah. I get that that is possible with players like Hammers who – to a large extent, are pretty predictable. I think most Everton fans now, having never actually seen the guy in the flesh, you, you probably get the feel of what he wants to do on the ball and that you know cut inside and or play a play a great through ball or play one out to Luca Dean. And don't get me wrong, at times it's it's absolutely unstoppable. But there, there is there is a sense in the Everton are kind of this. This fledgling grower into that sort of top echelons of the Premier League, and you kind of get to a point where the roots of bedded out, and we start to we start to spring out a little bit, but we kind of just get sawn away as soon as we the, the flowers of this thing start to bud. And I think that that's when that that's probably the next level for Everton, isn't it? And turning that turning that promise and that sort of the glorious run of games that we are able to put together for six or seven weeks in a row. What I want to see on the back of that is four or five pretty boring games where we pick up nine to 12 points. You know, can, yeah. can you achieve a base level of stability that maybe you do sacrifice a little bit of flair, but all of the game management mode that we've seen Carlo Ancelotti's sides in the past use and do, and granted it's with better players, but... I mean, there's a world-class manager there and, and, and we're not yeah. necessarily seeing world-class coaching. It, all of this boils down to the fact that we we haven't seen Pete Carlo Ancelotti at Everton. And, and yes, it's frustrating... No, we're not calling for his head. I think we're all certainly not we're we're all at that acceptable and sensible point now whereby we all feel comfortable having a relative amount of frustration and negative debate about a man who is ultimately not necessarily performing in his job to the extent that we want him to. But I I think that the summer's a precarious one for me. Um I, I wanna I I want to see Everton go out and sign fantastic players and do great things. Of course, I do, but that there has to be a point whereby we stop having these summers of, of, you know, we all we all spoke about this not being a false dawn. We're a lot closer to false dawn at the moment than we are to the promised land, and, and that's what worries me. I would, you
0: know. <laughs> it feels like every summer we're talking about adding a new layer of, yeah. of signings onto another layer of signings onto another layer of sign signings, you know, Trump
1: the yeah. signings that we made a, th- a three or four. Yeah. Ugh. And,
0: um, you know, I, I do wonder sometimes how much of a reboot or a rethink this, this whole setup needs. Um, and that doesn't mean clearing out every player, but I mean, I think it I and this is something we don't have time to talk about cuz we're going to end end here pretty soon but like something I want to consider I want you to think about going into the summer is just to think outside the box a bit does Everton need to kind of reboot some of 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 the of the whole you know just reboot the whole eleven on some level in that instead of just saying well these are five productive players and then these are the ones who aren't we want to get rid of those do you say maybe these three productive players can be sold because they don't fit into the approach or the level that i want or whatever i mean you know i I don't know what it is but do you do you consider and everton aren't going to sell any major productive player you know they're not going to sell three of them or anything like that but let me ask this Would you consider – and this is a real – and I'm saying this as someone who absolutely thinks that this guy at his peak is – you know, can be really good. Would you consider selling Richarlison this summer? Oh, Jesus. My name. Hold on, hold on. Don Conversely, (laughs) would you consider selling Dominic Calvert-Lewin this summer? And and the reason I ask that is – The reason, no, here's the reason I'm asking. I don't want to sell any of them. But what I, but what I wonder is, is, you know, we, we have these, these relatively easy answers, you know, like we know, we know, for instance, that, well, this player performs well individually, like, you know, Luca Dean, whatever. But are we sure that that combination of players, for whatever reason, works? And therefore, do you have to consider, More than just simply pasting over the cracks, do you have to consider that maybe um, while you're not going to get rid of every player, you are kind of creating something new? If mm-hmm. that makes sense, yeah. Um, I, I I'm 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 saying that and I'm throwing it out there, not because I you know I like both these players. They've they've made fans out of me, but I, and it's not really about any one of them. But it's it's a question of would you sell someone significant? as an acknowledgement that the overall approach isn't working? And then would you consider saying, we need to invest in multiple parts that will help us to play a certain way? And again, I know Ancelotti is not formationally Tied to one concept, but I do wonder, does he have in mind these types of players' attributes and just some basic things that I want to set up for in a general sense and be better than than the current mix is now? Anyway, just a question to, to think about and to leave with, but, but Mark, I don't know if you have any initial thoughts on that, but I... I wonder. I wonder how. Mu- I guess the question is, how much of a rethink does this whole thing require in order to avoid just having the same season over and over and over again?
1: Uh, well, not, I'm not going to touch on individual personnel, but I, I think what what you are advocating here is, I think I'm ready to see some bravery in the transfer market this summer. Um, going out and spending 100 million on three players is not necessarily brave. You, you are. Not, it's not necessarily risk taking, and I, I appreciate that there is a certain amount of risk to any football transfer. But I think we're we're ready to see something, maybe not quite as drastic as what you've said, Rob. But I do get where you're coming from in terms of it, it's okay at times to say that something is not necessarily fitting in terms of the chemistry that we needed to have. Um, mm-hmm. Moise Keane is probably going to be your biggest outgoing this summer. Yeah, no, hundred
0: percent. I expect it to be yeah. him. Um, but no, I, but, I, but we all know we have some we have some interesting assets, yeah. and that, that some some of those are our favorite players. Believe me, I know. But I, I I just wonder, you know, what you what's interesting about Everton is that the 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 squad is not performing in the way we would all like, but yet get over our kind of current bitterness. We have more sellable assets that are attractive sellable assets than we've had in previous seasons, you know. And so I think that you have to at least consider when deciding how to disperse all these options, you know, and resources um, you know what your what your options fully are in terms of moving a player on uh, who may want to quote take a next step up or what have you. Um, yeah. I, again, I'm not saying that they they need to do that. It's just something I'm thinking about. I'm just like, are we on the cusp of something, or do we really need to consider? An approach that is fundamentally different, because uh, I because we still have the you know, despite the early season uh, season success, we still have the what we've all called the Frankenstein squad, full of players with these kind of conf- sometimes conflicting skill sets who weren't technically bought to play together, and it's just kind of a mishmash at times. And so, I I don't know how much of a how much of that's even possible, but it's, you know, just interesting to think about. Um, you
1: rightly said, just to, just to finish on Robin, that we, we get to this dangerous point of layering failures upon failures. Um, This, this team, and in particular, I think Marcel Brands is important in this because he has obviously been very vocal about the size of, of Everton squad. uh, And in particular, the wage budget that comes with that size of squad. I think what we don't want this squad to become is this carousel of failure, whereby yeah. we just consistently bring in two or three for 60 or 70 million a season. We see how it goes for them for two years. In the meantime, we kind of just back up with people like, I don't know, if you want to call it a Mason Hallgate or Andre Gomez or Gilfie Sigurdsson or Alex Awobi. And all of these players kind of just get bottlenecked into low moves to Southampton, but like... Like Theo Walcott has done, and and we kind of never really make any form of bold statement on this squad. And we, we I'm not asking for Everton to take this hit fire approach to, to just throw in players off the bus, but there, there does have to be a level of realism about where do certain players fit into this squad. Mm-hmm. We are, we are realistically going to have people like Moise Keane, Theo Walcott, Cheng Tosin. Andre Gomez, all with massive question marks over their head. And I think it, it, it tends to get to this time of year where certainly as supporters, and um, yes, we are the most fickle of beings in this sport, but we kind of build this deadwood list in our head of, of players who we want yeah. to the Marcel Brands proactively go out and offload to other clubs so that, yes, we can free up our finances to go out and get new players and, and offer better deals for our most important players, but it, it also generates the atmosphere and the mentality that second best is just not good enough. Um, we our motto is the standard that we expect is is the phrase that has been used in in recent times. But quite frankly, if you if you just park all of your shit failures in the back of of Finch Farm, then that doesn't necessarily scream optimism and achievement to me. That there, there has to be a level of expectation put on these players. And if it's not achieved, then they have to go and source their their careers elsewhere. And, and that, that may seem incredibly brutal, but look at the best teams in the land. If you don't cut it there within three or four years, there's, there's not many growers in those squads that have kind of made it over time. There, there is an expected level of performance that has to be achieved to be good in this sport. And if you're not doing it at Everton, then, then I think Marcel Brands has to be the man to to put this foot down and move those people on.
0: Well, he's just signed a new
1: contract, so let's see him
0: use it, you know? Really? <laughs> it's kind of like you gotta you gotta government now it's time to govern. Yeah. I mean, yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that's a perfect place to end, uh, Mark. All this talk of Everton is of course making me want to drink, so I'm gonna go do that. uh Mark, thank you very much uh for joining me tonight. Um guys, there's a lot of great stuff on uh Blue Room. Um, you know, the subscribers weekly conversation this week was great. Um the the weekly is currently out. Uh, uh, we will have uh, Sunday post-match, all the usual usual stuff. Um, but continue to stay tuned into uh, to the Blue Room. And we will see you guys next week for more Kickabout. Take care.
1: Dear gas prices, go take a hike. Toyota is the number one retail brand for electrified vehicles for 22 years. The Toyota hybrid lineup brings efficiency with power and savings with style. Not to mention
0: top tech to help keep you connected plush premium interiors and the most advanced
1: toyota safety features so
0: now you know who you're talking to
1: toyota the number one retail brand for electrified vehicles for 22 years with a hybrid or electric vehicle built for every driver seriously dear
0: gas prices do you really think you can stand in our way think again
1: toyota hybrids find yours at toyota.com Toyota, let's go places. Based on manufacturer estimates, CY2000 2000 through 2021 sales. Sports Social Podcast Network.